1: Welcome to the Bloomberg P&L Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host,
2: Lisa Abramowitz.
0: Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor.
2: Find the Bloomberg P&L Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, as I mentioned a little bit ago, Hurricane Watch In effect now for Florida, uh, South Florida, the Florida Keys, that whole area. And the best track still has it going up the east coast of the state and then into the Georgia-Carolina border area. And that obviously has big impacts on the people who live there. But it also has a major impact on the agriculture done in these states. Uh, Hurricane Irma threatening uh, $1.2 billion worth of production uh, in Florida tomatoes, oranges, green beans, cucumbers, squash, and sugarcane. And just a few moments ago, North Carolina's Agriculture Commissioner put out a statement saying that a hurricane could cause severe economic loss of livestock, poultry, and crops in our state. Alan Virga covers agriculture for Bloomberg. He joins us now. And Alan, uh, people tend to forget... Uh, When we look at the hurricane damage, we tend to focus on the cities, but this could have an impact on a lot of crops that could have an impact
1: on what people pay for food. This does have potentially a great impact on crop prices and certain very key commodities that come out of Florida. You know, Mike, Florida is a very unique agricultural state because it's even further south than California. And as the number two producer of fresh produce, there are certain times of year where Florida is the only place in the U.S. that is growing strawberries or peppers, for example. Of course, it's the major U.S. orange producer, um, and all of these are very much in the direct path of the hurricane. You know, you can't move your orange trees. you can't evacuate them to someplace else, and people will lose their homes, people will lose their livelihoods, and, and there's a high likelihood of tragedy this weekend. From an agricultural standpoint, what you're looking at are folks who are preparing their fields for the winter crops um, and possibly not being able to even get a crop in this year simply because of the damage they may be facing in the next week.
2: Now, orange juice is the big one. That, uh, that was the one that the headlines immediately came about, uh, about orange juice futures jumping. Um, there's a real danger that uh, much of the, depending on where it hits, I guess,
1: uh, uh, much of the crop could be lost. Much of the crop could be lost. Uh, most of the oranges are grown in the southern two-thirds of the state, once again in the path of the hurricane. Um, the eastern part of the state has a special concentration of oranges. That is where this is being uh, tracked potentially for the storm's greatest impact directly. One thing where Florida may be in for a little bit of a break is the timing of this hurricane in the hurricane season. Uh, if this were a little bit later, you would see some of these crops, the winter crops again, because Florida has a different growing season – A lot of crops aren't in the ground yet. You know, not many tomatoes have been planted outside of the Tampa area. Uh, Strawberries uh, largely have not gone to the ground. And the oranges have not grown very much on the tree. Now, of course, trees can be taken down by this hurricane, but some of these larger groves, especially the trees that are further in, may be able to survive this. And and the fruit that, if it were a little bit later in the season, would be more likely to blow away might actually stay on the trees this time. So, you know, I was talking to the head of the Florida Tomato Exchange down in Mokalee, Florida, down by the Everglades. And he was saying, look, there's never a good time for a hurricane, um, but it is a little bit easier when it's this part of the season rather than a little bit further on.
2: Now, uh, the North Carolina thing that came out just a a few minutes ago, uh, they gave an executive order uh, allowing people uh, – you don't have to weigh your vehicle. I don't understand all this stuff. But basically what they're saying is farmers can harvest as much of their crops as possible before the storm hits. It's that time, I guess. And how much can they get in?
1: Yeah, and you are hitting on a key point about again how the tracking of the storm is really going to affect the agricultural damage because the further north you get from Florida, the more your crop mix changes and the more you get into some different industries. You know, the Carolinas are huge in poultry. Um Georgia is very large in in peanuts, for example. Um a lot of these crops the further you, you north you get, the more you get into traditional growing seasons, and that means fall harvests are being actually jeopardized. And in some ways you could see greater damage to those crops further north than you would see in Florida now in terms of you know interstate vehicles you know there's a lot of inspection of vehicles that go on between states because states have different food safety rules and a lot of those rules have now been suspended basically so that if you do have livestock if you do have a way of actually moving your animals you know unlike a plant that's coming out of the ground you can move those you have more of an ability to do that um, harvesting is going on you know Georgia is a major cotton state and so maybe you're going to be harvesting some things a little earlier than you would you know that has a financial Cost as well because that affects your yield. You're better off having some sort of a crop than no crop at all, but it's not the way that you would have done it otherwise, so there is an opportunity cost that's lost there. Uh,
2: Obviously, if the storm skirts Florida as bad as it would be going into the Carolinas, it's fewer people affected and uh, fewer big cities. Is is there, I hate to put it this way, but a a better case, not a best case, but a better case scenario for the track
1: of the storm in terms of agriculture? (laughs) That is a difficult question to answer because anybody who gets hit is going to be suffering. Um, if from the standpoint of the American grocery shelves, probably more damage in Georgia and the Carolinas. Is go- it's going to be felt more broadly on your grocery aisle than Florida, which is very much about fresh produce. You get further south, you get a larger variety of both livestock as well as crops. You get a more traditional harvest that this hurricane is interfering with, that calendar. Um, and you would definitely see a more broad-based damage if this storm tracks further north, rather than staying very much focused on Florida, where you would see some real devastating changes with some crops, but it is limited toward fresh produce for certain periods of the year.
2: Uh, Let me ask you this very quickly in about 30 seconds. How soon does what happens to the
1: crops in the ground affect what we pay in the grocery store? I mean, with gasoline, it's almost immediate. Sure. Well, and again, it's going to come down to consumer expectations. I mean, you've already seen the futures jump. Um, If companies decide to take advantage of this by raising some prices, maybe preemptively to get some profit in before they have to deal with shortages, um, it could be pretty quick. Um, Again, in Florida, you're probably going to see a little bit tougher effect maybe a few months from now in the winter. Um, If it's more North Carolina, if it's something like chicken and broilers, you could see a very immediate impact. Alan Bierga
2: covers agriculture for Bloomberg. Thank you very much. As we mentioned, Irma. Category 5 in the National Hurricane Center says it's going to stay that way. Not exactly sure where it hits, but uh, all of Florida and now the Carolinas being warned. Be ready. We haven't seen the hurricane hit land yet, but there are a lot of pictures of damage on the uh, internet um, from Hurricane Irma in Florida and the Carolinas. And I'm talking about retail stores. <laughs> I mean, the shelves have been stripped bare. Uh, and at grocery stores, at uh, do it yourself stores, um, it is that time when everybody goes and stocks up. Uh, we're joined now by Craig Johnson, the president of Customer Growth Partners, on the impact to retail from Harvey and Irma. There's kind of, I guess, a two part. Uh, thing to a storm like this. Uh, everybody goes and buys everything off the shelves, and then the stores get wrecked by the hurricane.
3: So on one hand, the retailers win. On the other hand, they lose. Yeah, well, it's, it, first of all, we have to say how difficult it is, and our thoughts go to the, the many victims of this, either people whose lives were lost or, you know, or their homes were ruined. And so when we see, we've been studying this since Hurricane Andrew, which is 92, the last big five to hit Florida. And typically there's uh, – uh, in, in most um, disaster events, there's a, a prior area, the prior section, and then an ex post facto. Uh, now, unpredicted events such as earthquakes, like the Northridge earthquake in, in, in the mid-'90s in L.A., and like 9-11, you know, there's no, no warning. But when there's a widely predicted thing, there's a ton of stuff sold. So the generator sets – I was chatting with the head of uh, Home Depot, uh, Craig Manier earlier this morning. That's they're they're virtually all gone generator sets uh, for when the power goes out. Uh, water was out throughout South Florida yesterday. Gasoline stations were out. Tap city. Now they're trying to bring in some new supplies, but it's very difficult. And especially when places like Home Depot and Lowe's are trying to pre-position supplies, uh, but they don't know exactly where the storm goes, so they have to kind of spread it out a little bit. It's a very difficult situation.
2: Yeah, th- th- that is one thing that I imagine has changed since Andrew, which was so many years ago, that the retailers have gotten better at anticipating, A, what people are going to want to buy, and B, as you mentioned, pre-positioning it.
3: Yeah, the the the, the analytics in the industry in terms of what's needed, when it's needed, et cetera. And this everything, batteries to flashlight to plywood. You know, plywood is, is literally, by definition, a before item right (laughs) and but uh uh um, uh, things like uh uh, batteries and generators you can wait till after the storm to get them but they may well be sold out Uh, but the the big retailers particularly places like costco walmart uh uh, target uh the two home improvement players you know depot and lowe's uh, uh, are much better at this but again Even they, they have pretty supple supply chains, pretty flexible, but they can't, you can't always outrun a storm because you don't know where it's going to be. How do you get something like uh, plywood or batteries? I mean— to a place.
2: I guess it's just the, the better weather forecasting gives them enough time to. What do they do? Fly
3: it in from somewhere? Well, no, uh, so let's, let's take just these two, because you can buy batteries a lot of places. You can buy it at, at the public Sure, but the, but the the level of thing, batteries yeah. needed
2: is what I'm talking well, about.
3: Well, now they're typically in, uh, in distribution centers, DCs, that are spread out in multiple places, you know, 20, 30 across the, the country or more, sometimes, depending on the retailer. And so they'll be. A warehouse in Florida, maybe a distribution, maybe even more than one. It'll be other than Georgia. There might be Alabama. So the one that's now, let's say it's sitting in Orlando. Uh, uh, It will run out of batteries, say. It'll run out of plywood and other stuff. So they have to bring it in from the next adjacent one. And what you want to make sure you do, well, you don't want to bring it down from – you know, from from Savannah, because Savannah might be next in line to get hit. So you want to, you know, take it from elsewhere, maybe uh, uh, west, you know, you know, uh, west Florida, Alabama, and then bring it down there. So this is a thing. You you basically have logistical officers working for you if you're a big retailer who figure these things out. Yes, that's that's exactly right. You have all these companies because this is you know this is not the first rodeo on this. So they've gone through it. Houston in its own crazy way, which is like, you know, that hit maybe a couple what, a couple weeks ago ago. There was lessons been learned in Houston that they are on a real time basis applying to whether it's Florida, Georgia, you know, Carolinas, whatever. They're applying those lessons of getting stuff there, getting early and like water. You know, there were fights at Costco yesterday morning over over the last, you know, few things. Fist fights breaking out in some of the stores. It was crazy. And and now it's all gone. Um, Water's tricky because it's heavier... You know, you can't fly it in that easily. Uh,
2: I got about thirty seconds left. But what about things that aren't uh, critical? You know, like clothing. Um, those retailers affected as well.
3: Well, they'll be affected, but typically, if someone needs to buy st- a new, you know, warm weather st- stuff, you know, for the fall or or or, or light sweat, you don't have to get it this week. Uh, uh, you can get it, you know, a week or two after things instead of that. And of course, you can always order it online. So you know, purchase uh, is deferred, but not yes, uh, lost. it's not foregone because we say disasters don't destroy demand. They displace it forward in time, backward, or online. So in general, the, uh, the retailers won't necessarily lose other than damage-wise. Yeah, they'll, they'll be a net neutral. In fact, they may be slightly up because people in the entire cone will buy generators, even though they may not end up needing it. <laughs> Everybody has a generator in their backyard. Craig Johnson, thanks very much for being with
2: President of Customer Growth Partners.
4: Start your journey at steeple.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
3: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Interesting story.
2: Uh, the other day I walked into a whole food store. Now, they, Of course, they were just bought by Amazon. And there was a whole table full of Amazon Echoes and Dots. There was a big sign on the table that said, Farm Fresh. It's not like the frozen or, you know, uh, boxed Amazon Echoes uh, that you get from ordinary retailers. (laughs) These are farm-fresh ones. But it's all part of Amazon's massive expansion, so big that Amazon is now shopping. Uh, According to Jeff Bezos, they're looking for a new second North American headquarters, dubbed HQ2, somewhere in the country in which they would house 50,000 people. Shira Overday is a Bloomberg Gadfly columnist. Um, I've never heard of this. I mean, I know people have campuses for various reasons, one place or another around the world. But um, to have something that you would dub a second headquarters and have it be so large, this is unusual.
5: Yeah, I mean, I guess Boeing sort of has two headquarters a bit in Seattle. Well, they had a Chicago. weird deal because, yeah.
2: because that's where their manufacturing is in Seattle. Right. And everybody would have been really i'll I'll use a, I'll just nicely say they would be angry if they had moved that away, but they want to get their executives out of there, right. But they don't have fifty thousand people in Chicago,
5: no, I think that's right. and and I mean, I think we're at the point where Amazon has basically outgrown its hometown, that, as you said, they have forty thousand people in Seattle. There's a good deal of anxiety in the city of Seattle about Amazon kind of gobbling up all the prime real estate, that the the number of employees there has made traffic worse, raised housing prices, right? So I I can't even imagine doubling the size of Amazon in a city like Seattle. So I guess they're looking for someplace else to put another Amazon-sized company.
2: Where would that place be?
5: I think we can safely say that... The guns, the gun fired this morning, and you're going to have every city, any big city and municipality hoping that Amazon comes into their backyard and sort of dangling tax um, tax breaks and other goodies to Jeff Bezos. While we were sitting here, the mayor of Memphis tweeted that they're going to bid for this new Amazon headquarters. So, again, that's just the first of many. Uh,
2: doesn't – I mean they, it would seem to me they would need some – specialization in the city that they would end up You got to have a place where there are tech people, right?
5: Yeah, I would think so. And, you know, Amazon had this kind of HP eight-page brief that kind of lays out their criteria. And it's basically they want a highly educated workforce. They want a relatively large city that has kind of a suburban or urban core. They want it to have a, a quote-unquote, business-friendly climate. So, you know, they do have some criteria in mind for what they're looking for, including having enough um, kind of talented people.
2: Would you think that they would want to move – Uh, away from the West Coast? In other words, have a second headquarters somewhere on the east side of the country?
5: Uh, I mean, I'm guessing um, a little bit, but I would think, yeah, they would want some geographic diversity and, and whether that means... I've heard people this morning talking about Utah, for example, which people have dubbed Silicon Slopes. Yeah. Right. uh, These sort of Silicon Valley um, slightly further east. Um, That obviously gets you a little bit out of the Bay Area and Seattle tech hubs, but not quite so far away. But again, I I imagine many cities all over the country are going to be vying for Amazon's new HQ.
2: Well, what do we think uh, Jeff Bezos wants out of this? I mean, he... You you bring fifty thousand jobs somewhere. That's going to transform where every even if you put it in New York, eight million people. That's going to be transformative. Yep. Does he want to transform someplace? Does he want to make it the next Seattle and raise some of those questions? Uh, do we know what he wants to accomplish here?
5: So one thing that's been very interesting to watch is Amazon's reaction to. I think there's just kind of growing anxiety about the impact to the uh, labor economy and the economy at large from the transformation of retail from physical, uh, in some cases, mom-and-pop stores to e-commerce controlled by a handful of very large companies, primarily Amazon. And... You know, you see them reacting here and there to sort of economic reports about, you know, these uh, automated package warehouses crushing jobs and Amazon putting retailers out of business. And I can imagine that making – generating attention for a company for adding 50,000 jobs for potentially – transforming the economy of a a medium-sized or or large city by adding 50,000 high-paying jobs. That is the kind of attention that Amazon wants, not attention for them, you know, shutting mom-and-pop retailers on Main Street.
2: Uh, Very quickly, just 30 seconds left. Uh, When do we find out? Uh,
5: They're looking to have a city selected soon, and they want to start building the new headquarters by 2019.
2: This is like you know, bidding for the Olympics, I guess. <laughs> I wonder who gets the TV rights to all of this. <laughs> and who's going to carry the torch? Exactly. She's from Bloomberg Gadfly. I heard our next guest uh, you know, draw a breath when he heard Greg read the 10-year note yield 2.04%. Uh, (laughs) Marvin Lowe is senior global market strategist at BNY Mellon. Um, what is going on now? I mean, we were talking about this earlier on the show. The fed is in theory going to announce that next month it's going to start tapering its bond purchases. Uh, and that should all things being equal, push rates higher. Uh, Mario Draghi said today, we're not ready to do anything. We're going to keep buying 60 billion euros a month worth of uh, uh, securities in Europe, and we keep our interest rate at negative 40 basis points. And everybody wants into the euro, uh, and everybody wants into uh, American bonds. Um, What's going on out there?
6: Well, you know, I still think that the the central banks are – The most important um, thing that investors have to consider, and you've got these waxing and waning um, on the next stage of monetary policy, and um, there are certain aspects that are going on in Europe in terms of the fact that they haven't started to reverse their accommodation, whereas the Fed and you know to a certain degree what we saw from the Bank of Canada uh, yesterday has started to uh, move in that direction. So um, the next move. In terms of how the market looks at it, is that the ECB has to do something at this point, and I think you're starting to see that play out in its currency. The Fed, however, is a few steps ahead, and they've got some challenges to continue along the path that they've um, that they've kind of told the market over the
2: course of the last few quarters. Yeah, so basically, it's the old Chuck Prince thing: you got to keep dancing as long as the music's playing.
6: You know, it's that, that, that's such a that's such a analogy that has a lot of uh uh difficult connotations associated with it but you know we saw again uh, a vix spike kind of around uh, some of the north korea tensions that developed, and you know once again a collapse around it there still is a lot of liquidity in the market uh, one certainly has to be prepared um to kind of see these spikes but you know so long as that liquidity is out there i think that kind of the reach for yield and kind of this uh, buoyant type of risk environment is something that we have to consider
2: um Tide of money, but could the tide go out very quickly and leave people, as uh, in Warren Buffett's fav- famous analogy, uh, not wearing their uh,
6: swimming trunks? <laughs> There's there, there are a lot of um, interrelationships in this market that we haven't seen since the crisis. You know, whether it's whether it comes from um, these packaged products that are out there, the ETFs, the ability to. Um, make investments in sectors that once were tied to more longer-term type uh, type thought processes. Um, from the central bank perspective, they're going to continue to convey that they're going to take uh, money out of the system in a very slow manner. And uh, for the moment,
2: the market is certainly buying it, I think. Was the market prepared for that? I mean, or did people start thinking that they were going to be um more hawkish than they have been.
6: Yeah, I think I think when we were in the middle of summer and, you know, we can kind of think back um, to some of the volatility that Draghi introduced when he had his speech in, in Portugal, uh, that certainly raised the specter that there was going to be a coordinated move around monetary policy. And we kind of saw some volatility around that. But lo and behold, um, currencies and uh, inflation and um uh, the impact that currency has on your economy, growth, etc., uh, etc., cetera, et cetera, comes into play, and it's showing how difficult it is for them to
2: um, to step away. Uh, how does that? How did when when you talk to people about what they should be buying? Then, um, how do you incorporate this uh, this explanation for what's going on into your buying suggestions?
6: You know, I, I think I think um, we have to start looking a little bit more deeply in terms of what sectors, what parts of the world would benefit from um, the fact that it's hard to withdraw a lot of this monetary policy stimulus. Emerging markets have had uh, an incredible run. Um, uh, they've been the top performer in a lot of different asset classes, depending on how you um, how you slice it. That's still a story that we should look at. Um, I think it's a story where we have to dissect it a little bit more. You know, the, the easy trade is over. You know, do we start looking at industries within that? Do we start looking at various rating sectors within that sleeve um, to decide uh where there might be you know there's no more low-hanging fruit but let's say you know a fruit that we could still reach without a
2: without a ladder uh were you surprised yet and i'm thinking of countries where you you know you could go were you surprised by canada yesterday you know to a certain degree um the fact that they
6: moved i, I think the surprise was that they moved uh yesterday rather than next month so to a certain degree there's a little bit of a surprise in it but uh You know, it was widely expected, uh, including by myself, that they were going to go sometime this year. October seemed like it made more sense um, in terms of seeing how the other central banks did. But, you know, it it created a little bit of volatility. But overall, um, the move is not a surprise from the perspective of are they going to move within, uh, you know, are they going to move this year again? The answer would have been yes for most people.
2: What about uh, now? Are they done they sounded very dovish in their statement
6: yeah you know they they, they I and mean, again it's it's the currency thing this is the challenge uh with a lot of what the central banks are trying to do it's it's a it's a very fine line um it does come down to the data they were forced um to a certain degree because they've had some very very strong data prints they also have um you know housing concerns and, and real estate price concerns that maybe some of the uh, other central banks aren't um as worried about uh, they, those are still issues, um, but it will be on. It'll, it will be reliant on the data, and it seems firm. So, um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we see another move from them this year. Uh,
2: what about other uh, markets that might surprise us? So, I, I presume you're not expecting much from the Japanese, but. Uh, any, any place else around the world that you're watching
6: you know Japan J- Japan and the yen are always interesting because of the flight to quality type of aspect yeah. that, that the yen has so uh, we're looking at it from that perspective and, and it makes it incredibly challenging because you know whether it's a you know it's a tape bomb that comes out of the administration and or you know real saber rattling that comes out of the peninsula the yen is at the the center of that in terms of what their monetary policy can do they're they're somewhat hamstrung they they own a very large part of the market already they are are, um, you know, uh, buying pretty much as much as they can. Uh, I think that this year with their 10-yield targeting, they've kind of reduced their purchases. So there's a little bit of tapering that's been going on there already. But their yields are, are you know, they, they, they don't move a whole lot kind of given how large of a buyer the, the BOJ is already at this point. You
2: mentioned tape bombs. Uh, do you wear a hard hat to work these days? I mean, the, the way that the news flow has been?
6: Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, I'm in the same camp as, as all of us. To a certain degree, uh, we get immune from it. And, and again, the fact that we could you know, spike the VIX by somewhere in the range of 40% on Monday and kind of see it collapse back down to this 11, 11.5 uh, era uh, area makes it so that um, we – are almost expecting that. That's not necessarily um, a good attitude to have, but it seems that we're always kind
2: of looking for it. You do get a little bit immune to it. Uh, uh, interesting question. Stocks keep going up, and I've only got about uh, 15 seconds here. Bonds stay range-bound. The only movement is in currencies. Does that change anytime soon?
6: Yeah. Um, you know what I, I I think I think that that's a pattern that's going to it's going to take something uh to break it um and and so far we're we're still within that a lot of this this debt ceiling discussion uh whether or not the administration can be effective might be a catalyst around that, but
2: so far the market has been able to overlook it. All right. Thank you very much. Marvin Lowe, Senior Global Market Strategist at BNY Mellon. Uh, The man with the hard hat on (laughs) as you go to work. Tape bombs every day, it seems. And uh, we're keeping an eye on, obviously, Irma for something that could happen and uh, keeping an eye on the White House for anything that could come out these days. I'm Michael McKee. This is Bloomberg.